I never thought of Ghostbusters as an allegory for environmental protection in the late 70s and early 80s. Absolutely. And it was a way to educate the public of what EPA has to do. I am going to read a statement, and I'll need you to tell me whether you strongly agree with it, agree, are neutral, disagree, or strongly disagree. I'm afraid of no ghosts. Oh, I I agree. <laughs> I ain't afraid of no ghosts. But you don't strongly agree. Maybe a little bit, but not much. <laughs> I'm, I'm not afraid of no ghosts. <laughs> Guys, welcome to the new, the improved Civic Genius Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian Youngblood, and I'm here to help you understand how your government works by getting actual serious people to talk to me about my favorite movies of the 1980s and 90s. Today, I'm talking with Hugh Kaufman, who was one of the people who started the Environmental Protection Agency over 50 years ago. I am so excited to talk to Hugh because he's going to explain to us how the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, works, what it does, what it doesn't do, how it's organized. And he's going to explain it in terms that even I can understand, those of the classic 1984 film Ghostbusters. Hugh. It's so nice to see you. Well, it's good to see you. And it's always fun to talk about uh, regulating uh, hazardous materials uh, in the environment, which the Ghostbusters were trying to do and successfully did in that 1984 it's movie. It's so fun. This is, this is, I could talk about this all day. So if you haven't seen this movie since 1984 or at all, what you need to know is this. New York City is full of ghosts. A ragtag team of scientists has set up shop in an old firehouse in what is described as, like, not a great part of town. And this will be the headquarters from which the Ghostbusters will dispatch to your apartment or your fancy hotel or whatever venue and remove a ghost. So, Hugh, I want to get in very quickly to the potential risks that something like, say, an unregulated ghost-busting industry might pose to the public. But first, can I just ask you, are you a Ghostbusters fan? I love the movie. I couldn't stop laughing, especially when one of the key uh, elements of the movie was government regulatory agency, like the Environmental Protection Agency, getting tremendous publicity. Once you see it in this movie, you can't unsee it. <laughs> That's correct. First off, could you tell us, Hugh, about your experience at the EPA, what you did there? Um, what are some of the major things that you handled there? Well, I was uh, the chief investigator on hazardous sites and hazardous materials, and I helped write uh, the nation's laws uh, requiring licensing of hazardous waste storage, treatment, and disposal, and cleaning up uh, emergencies like the Love Canal. So that was all my bailiwick starting in the 1970s. And so it was our, our work in that area that really was the foundation for the character, uh, Mr. Peck, the EPA inspector in the movie Ghostbusters. You're a real life Walter Peck. Well, except, except I'm not a pencil neck. <laughs> it's true. You're, you can hang. I, I can confirm. Can you tell people who don't know about the Love Canal what 
what that was? Yes, uh, there are a number of places all over the country that were disposal sites for millions and millions of tons of toxic materials generated in the manufacturing of chemicals, etc. Love Canal was one of them, which is in upstate New York, where a housing development was built on top of a toxic uh, waste storage facility. And the material started leaking, causing illness, etc. And we uh, found out about it and had to join with the city and the state to get the people out of there by their homes uh, so that they uh, aren't being poisoned. And it was a very famous case in the 1970s that led to the uh, passage of the Resource Conservation Recovery Act and the Superfund Cleanup Act. That's the law that Mr. Peck is uh, referring to in saying that you can't have that, that facility holding all these dangerous ghosts in the middle of the city. And so it is, in fact, a real law, except it doesn't talk about ghosts. It talks about hazardous materials like dioxin. And you can't have a facility like that in the middle of a city. Wow. Yeah, I helped helped, uh, develop and write that law, worked with Congress for many years. So some of my work helped lay the foundation for one of the funniest movies ever made in the United (laughs) States. So you see, there are good things bureaucrats can do, too. (laughs) So you have an incredible depth of experience that is highly irrelevant. So you have all this experience when it comes to really complex, dangerous, high-profile environmental disasters. So what happens in this movie is this. Into the Ghostbusters headquarters comes this guy who introduces himself as Walter Peck from the EPA. And Walter Peck from the EPA starts asking uh, Bill Murray, who is Dr. Venkman, PhD. I think he's a paranormal psychologist or something. I forget what his sexual area of purported expertise is. Walter Peck from the EPA starts asking Bill Murray, Dr. Venkman, a battery of questions. So he's like, so you catch ghosts. How many ghosts? Where do you put the ghosts? Oh, in a storage facility. Okay, where's the storage facility? Is it on site in this building in the middle of New York City? So Hugh, given what you know from your experience, why is Walter Peck from the EPA asking all of these questions? Well, these are important questions because you're not allowed to have a hazardous facility in the middle of New York City and if you do, you need a permit for it. And and Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and the crew do not have a permit and, uh, frankly, haven't even read the hazardous waste storage and hazardous material storage regulation. And so the questions were being asked, and the answers told Mr. Peck correctly that that facility shouldn't be there. But Mr. Peck made the mistake of saying, well, let's just get rid of it by opening up everything, as opposed to bringing in experts to help them deal with the situation and the hazardous emergency. And that's uh, so Mr. Peck, uh, faced with a bad situation, made the wrong decisions. All of those ghosts that were illegally stored in New York City came out, creating a tremendous catastrophe potential for the city and making the Ghostbusters have to get going fast to save New York. 
if you have to call in outside experts to help you deal with the situation, um, who are those people? Like, where do you find them? What kind of background do they have? Are they in the private sector sometimes? Like, do they work for the industry? Are they academics? Well, I think that's that's a good question. And the answer is we look, uh, we have a list of experts in various areas. Like if you've got uh, a dioxin problem, we have scientists from universities, people who work in industry and in maybe government agencies that do have years of experience in dealing with dioxin contamination. I don't know that we have uh, one. I know we don't have any experts on ghosts. So how, what should he have done? The inspector showed up and there's a scene where the Ghostbusters are like, you don't want to do that. Like, don't turn that thing off. It's going to be a disaster. And he's like, you got the inspectors, like, you're not supposed to be here. You're not supposed to be doing this. And then as you say, he shuts the facility down. What should he have done? Well, let me use the analogy of a nuclear uh, waste uh, facility would have all kinds of checks and balances so that the uh, nuclear waste doesn't get out of the facility. He made a decision, since you're not allowed to have, for example, a nuclear waste facility, just shut everything down, and then you won't have it anymore. But by doing that, he uh, he would have been unleashed all the nuclear waste. So that's not what you're supposed to do. What you're supposed to do is to design some mechanism to make the area more protective so that none of the hazardous material, in this case the ghosts, get out. But because he was a one-dimensional thinker, he just said, oh, you're not supposed to have it here? So just open up the pitcocks and let it be gone. And that's what created the mess. He was stupid. Should it be a priority for Congress to fund expertise in ghosts at the EPA? There are no experts on ghosts at EPA. Something that I always find kind of delightful about federal agencies is there are just like these giant office buildings packed with all these anonymous experts on all kinds of arcane topics. So could you just give us an idea of what kind of expertise someone from the EPA would likely have to go and, say, investigate the Ghostbusters headquarters? Well, first of all, you're going to have to have an expert on ghosts. And since we're not regulating ghosts, we don't have any of those experts. But on other stuff, for example, emissions from automobiles, there'll be uh, experts on mechanical engineering, on the engines, etc., etc. Experts on fuel, chemical engineers. So you'll have a lot of different experts working in those fields. Now, we're going away from gasoline and moving uh, towards electric, which means there'll be more uh, requirements for power plants. So you'll have more need more experts on power plants that are creating the energy that makes automobiles move. So you'll you'll have mostly engineers and health scientists uh, that are in a place like EPA. But we we do not have experts on ghosts, which, as we've noticed, is a or noted as a top legislative priority in the 118th Congress. What um, just to get a little bit more specific for people who don't have a lot of familiarity with this, um, like what kind of backgrounds do those people have? Do people come like go get a Ph.D. in chemical engineering and then go straight into the EPA? Do they have maybe a background in private industry? Where do where do people come from? 
all over. We have people who um, may have worked for an auto company and retired. We have uh, uh, engineers who have master's degrees or PhDs. We have laboratory scientists who work with different chemicals. We have professors. There's a whole host of people that, and we, and sometimes some of them work for EPA as EPA officials, and some of them are consultants uh, who will hire for specific jobs. We have experts from all walks of life who have the education and experience that can be useful in our regulatory work. We send money to universities to develop schools and areas where we need people trained and educated to work in those areas. So we don't just hire people. We also give grants to universities to develop uh, the expertise that we need. Our society is a very complex society, and we, uh, we have complex situations and rules to deal with the complexities. This is not like the Stone Age. And if something doesn't work, for example, the other day, apparently some software at the FAA didn't work, and that created a tremendous problem on moving people by airplane around the United States and around the world. So uh, we live in a complex society, and we have complex systems that develop and continue to develop to deal with that. I'm glad you brought that up because it's such a good example of there's this computer system that alerts, if I'm understanding correctly, alerts pilots to hazards all over the place. So is there a weather pattern that they need to avoid? Is there a, you know, a runway closed where they're going? And as you were saying, there was a glitch in that system and the FAA, I think, had to ground thousands of flights for some period of time. And now there's this whole process of inquiry, right? So like the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg is... I don't know, everyone's looking into it. There are probably going to be hearings. Have you been through, um, have you had an experience where there is some kind of big public face, like sort of consumer facing thing? Like there are a lot of things the government deals with that we never, you know, the average person never thinks about, but something like, can I make my flight? The average person thinks about, do you have any experience with something where um, there was something very public where... um, the inquiry process into it became something that the public was really interested in? Well, uh, most uh, recently is the drinking water problems in the capital of Mississippi, Jackson. Uh, And periodically, every half dozen years, some city has a drinking water problem where the water coming out of the tap is poisoned. And how do you deal with that? Because you can't have people drinking or showering or cooking with poison water. And this comes up all the time. Can you think of an example where the public or some member or members of the public have been concerned about something that the EPA um, doesn't regulate, says is not in their purview? Um, and people have said, no, no, this is like, this is a problem. You guys really need to pay attention to this. Um, and EPA has either said, no, like, we don't need to have anything to do with that. Or, oh, you're right. We need to somehow get the authority to regulate that. Well, I, I think the perfect answer is hazardous materials, hazardous waste uh, that the movie was talking about. Because up until almost 1980, we had no regulations for these materials and storage of these materials at all, nor did we have the authority to do that. And so Congress had to give us that authority. That's what made the movie so interesting because of the timing that the regulations we developed 
thanks to congressional authority in 1980 and beyond, were in fact what they were talking about, licensing these type of facilities. But for a dozen years, EPA didn't have that authority. And so we worked to get it from Congress and develop, develop those regulations. So it was very timely, the movie. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened? So there were, I guess, scientists, maybe advocates who were saying, we need to regulate this stuff. This is dangerous. And then they had to go to Congress and presumably educate Congress and like convince Congress to do something. Well, that was one of my jobs, which is to investigate sites where there was contamination, document it, and write it up, and and try to put together what to do about them, what's required legislatively and regulatory-wise to prevent those catastrophes, like the Love Canal, which was the most famous one in the 1970s. So that was one of my duties, is, is doing that. And we had scientists from state and local government, our regional offices, as well as environmentalists finding places. And we did the inspections and wrote up and we would take this to Congress and say, we have to do something about this because there's no way to prevent it. And we've got millions of Americans whose health is at risk without some kind of regulatory structure. So that was going on in the 1970s to the beginning of 1980. And that's what made it so interesting because that's the issue that uh, the Ghostbusters movie dealt with. Only only they dealt with the ghosts. They didn't deal with dioxin or trichloroethylene or benzene. I wanted to bridge from something that you just said. So this movie comes out in 1984. This is during the Reagan presidency. It's the Reagan revolution. And... In two years from this movie, in 1986, Reagan is going to say at a news conference that the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. So this is a period where a lot of policymakers are pushing back on what they see as too much government regulation. And at the same time, you're talking about this time when it becomes very clear that there's a need for some kind of regulation of all these different substances that are hazardous to human health. And we see, so we see this like anti-regulatory theme a lot throughout Ghostbusters. For example, the EPA in the movie is kind of this out of touch ivory tower institution. Walter Peck is wearing a three-piece suit and he has this kind of blue blue blood, like Harvard manner of speaking. And Venkman, who is Bill Murray, by contrast, is like wearing a jumpsuit and he could be a mechanic and he's all dirty and gooey. This movie has a lot of goo. So the movie sets up this dynamic of like the fat cats in Washington up against the little guy, the small business owner. Could you talk about how, in your experience, the EPA thinks about that dynamic where you have, a say, a business owner who's like, hey, I'm providing a valuable service here. Uh, I'm busy busting ghosts all day, which the people of New York City need. And at the same time, the government has some reasonable cause for concern. Well, I think uh, you're absolutely right. There was, and still is today, a battle between how much regulation should the government do and and not interfere with business. And the decisions that were made bipartisan back then uh, was that you have to not regulate unless there's going to be an emergency if you don't regulate. And I think dealing with COVID, which is an issue we dealt with now, would have been very different if it had come up in the 1970s and 80s. 
Now there's tremendous pressure by a large segment of the public to just let it go, not regulate. Whereas uh, back in the 70s and 80s, because of the number of people who died and would die because of COVID, there would be more pressure to regulate and there would not be so many people against regulating. The decision was to put EPA on the front lines to deal with environmental issues and regulations because EPA, there was so much support from the public for EPA that the public would understand how important regulations can be on environmental and hazardous material issues. Under Nixon, then Carter, EPA was gearing up and moving towards regulating uh, hazardous materials, hazardous situations. Uh, and there was a backlash when Reagan came in. He led the backlash to deregulate, not to have so much regulation. And there was a major fight. Uh, the head of EPA, whose son now is on the Supreme Court, lost her job, as did all the top people at EPA, in trying to deregulate environmental protection. It was in the news constantly as were sites like Love Canal. And so Ghostbusters came out in the middle of all of that. And so it was more important than just releasing ghosts in that movie. It was dealing with, do you regulate or don't you regulate? And how hazardous situations? And should you have regulations or shouldn't you? And they put in the movie an inspector, Mr. Peck, that people will say, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't regulate. We can't let EPA have these kind of pencil neck people running around. And and so uh, they entered the fray in that regard. But because it was a comedy, it really didn't, luckily, didn't work against regulating hazardous material. You really should have been his supervisor. Um, so, like, if you made this... I would have fired the guy. <laughs> you would have fired the guy. <laughs> I would have fired the guy, yeah. So you're kind of talking about in the 70s and the 80s, there being a lot of public support for, um, or sorry, pre-Reagan, there was a lot of public support for regulating these things that were becoming known to be dangerous to human health. And it sounds like, what was the support like for that in Congress? Like, were people from EPA going to testify and saying, you know, this stuff causes cancer, this stuff does X? And were you like, were you finding kind of general bipartisan support? for uh, regulating those materials? Well, yes. I mean, in the 1970s and before Reagan came in, we had both Republicans and Democrats in Congress supporting regulating hazardous materials. And EPA officials and scientists were uh, sent to Capitol Hill to testify at hearings uh, every week on various hazardous material situations, building public support for developing and carrying out regulations to protect the public and protect the health of men, women, and children. And when Reagan came in, Reagan led the fight against these regulations, which caused a major uproar. Long term, that's so interesting. So then long term, we have different presidents and different presidents install different heads of these agencies. So what does it look like over, what does it look like over time? Like you have um, again, pre-Reagan, you have someone who's running the EPA who's saying, yeah, we should regulate more. And then there's a new president, there's a new head of the EPA, and they come in with a kind of new ideology. Um, like, how does the how does the staff handle that? If you are just a person who works at EPA, 
and you're like, here's my job. Here's what I'm supposed to do. Like, is there a lot of whiplash when you get new leadership under a new president? In some cases, there's whiplash. And in some cases, people just keep following the rules. If there's a law, they'll follow the law. If there's a regulation, they'll follow the regulation. And that will protect them from being politically beaten up by the new heads. The first president that created EPA was Richard Nixon, who was a conservative Republican. And uh, he put into EPA as head Bill Ruckel's house. I came in with the Ruckel's house. And uh, God rest his soul, he's passed away now. But he was a very good administrator. And Nixon was very pro-EPA regulation uh, for, among other reasons, because personally, he was afraid of cancer. And so supported these regulations that would reduce the, the risk of cancer in human beings in the United States. And it's interesting because you see how these kinds of things get so politicized. But I think the you know public opinion of regulating things that are dangerous that can cause cancer, like, I don't know how much that has changed. So right now, if you go out and, you know, run a poll on climate change, like, do you think climate change is a top priority? You're probably going to get really different answers from, say, Republicans and Democrats. But if you ask people questions like, do you want clean air? Do you want a clean environment? Do you want to preserve places to go hiking and hunting? Like, there is a lot of bipartisan support for preserving the environment. You know, like people, smart people, and maybe not so smart people are inventing things all the time. And we touched on this a little bit earlier. And so like for some innovations, it's pretty clear how the government regulates them. So if I'm, say, a pharmaceutical company, and I create a new cholesterol drug or something, I know that FDA has to approve it. And like, kind of the average person knows, well, the FDA has to approve that before, you know, this pharmaceutical company can start selling it. There's a check and balance. Oh, talk about that. Well, the check and balance is, is a government agency uh, making sure that whatever it is, the drug, for example, isn't killing people uh, and is doing what they say it's going to do. So that's a check and balance to protect the public. And the public supports that. They don't want drugs being put out there with no one looking to see if it does what it says it does and doesn't kill right. you. So the public supports that regulation and that system continues. So I think that's true. And at the same time, um, I've certainly heard people say, and uh, you know, biotech companies, like people who are innovating and developing these drugs or therapies, for example, will say it takes, there's so much red tape and it takes so long to get things approved. And people are waiting for these therapies and drugs and we need to get them to market faster. And you're making the very important point that, you know, you need to do a lot of research and understand what it is that you're releasing upon the world before you put it out there. Well, let me ask, how do you think about that tension? Do you think that different that the EPA at different times has handled that kind of question differently? Well, I think the way they handle that policy de uh, decision depends on who's in office and who's in Congress. Obviously, the Nixon administration, the Carter administration, handled it much differently than the Reagan administration. Uh, and that's why the Reagan administration got clobbered because the public supported what Nixon and Carter were doing and not what Reagan was doing. Do you think that there, like, is there a clear answer to this? Is there a kind of obvious, like, 
obviously you should slow processes down to make sure that we know what we're dealing with when something new comes online or, you know, obviously we should, I don't know, obviously we should let the private sector innovate as much as it wants and just kind of step in when, you know, when something has gone horribly wrong. Like, do you see that as a settled question or is that always a tension that exists no matter? That's always a tension because there's a black and white issue. Do you have a check and balance or do you let industry uh, do whatever they want with no check and balance? And the black and white answer is you can't let them do that. You have to have some regulation. Now you get to the thing, well, how many parts per million of dioxin should you allow to be released from a hazardous material facility? 70 parts per million or seven parts per million? Now now you're dealing with, well, we're not sure. You have to do some research to see uh, what the risks are in having a seven part per million versus a 70 part per million uh, regulation or standard. And that's where you bring in the scientists, you do the studies, and yet you don't want these discussions to go on forever because you do have to regulate. So you have to have some discipline to the system. And so you're always involved in disciplining the system to get the things out, but doing it right. And that's true day in and day out, which is why there will always be an EPA or some regulatory agency, if it's a different name in 20 years, so be it, uh, that, that needs to deal with those issues. Those issues never go away. So if I, like if I invent ghost busting and I just start doing it, like I hang a shingle and now I'm doing it, um, am I supposed to figure out for myself, like which approvals I need to start doing this? Like do people start, I guess I'm sort of asking like, how do you even, how do you even know? Like I want to start a business. I think I've got this new technology. I'm going to go give it a try. Like is the onus on me to figure that out? And how would I even, like where would I start? Well, that's a good question. That's one of the first things that we did in creating EPA was to have outreach so that if someone wants to start something like a hazardous waste disposal facility and needs to know what pieces of paper do I need approval from to do this, there's an entryway to EPA to say, what do I need? And, and, and we have a list, okay, you have to do this, this, you know, get this approved, et cetera. And so you're not flying blind. Sometimes people will just hire a consultant who's who's an expert at working with the regulatory agencies and let them do it. The first things we did is to have a mechanism so that anyone who wanted to do something like build a hazardous material facility could say, what pieces of paper do I need signed so that I can do this within the law? So EPA plays a role in helping the public uh, with that, as opposed to saying, you're on your own. And if you can't figure it out, you're in trouble. That's good to hear. I'm going to shift gears a little bit um, because we somehow have not talked about another legendary star in this film, Sigourney Weaver, who plays Dana Barrett. Um, Okay. The things you need to know about Sigourney Weaver in this movie, uh, AKA Dana Barrett are one, she is extremely classy. She is a cellist. She's an excellent wardrobe Two. Bill Murray is in love with her. And three, her body becomes inhabited by an ancient demigod named Zul. So I'm jumping around a little bit in the film's timeline. 
So like at one point we're in Dana's apartment. She sits down in this, her whole aesthetic is great. She sits down in this fabulous kind of petal pink armchair that is the color of the wallpaper in my childhood kitchen for sure. And she is attacked by this beast with these like zombie claws. And she and the 80s armchair get pulled across the floor and into another room with a sinister glowing light. And the beast eventually runs out of the lobby of Dana's building and into what I think is Central Park. So later, Venkman, Bill Murray, shows up to see Dana, who he is in love with, and there are police everywhere outside of her building. So he asks a cop, New York City police officer, what's going on? And the cop is like, someone brought a cougar to a party and it went berserk. And this seems like a good place to talk about how the EPA coordinates with law enforcement. Can you talk about that? Where an issue we deal with has to do with compliance with local or state laws, we will work with, uh, as a team, law enforcement, whether it's police, uh, fire, uh, or local or state regulatory bodies. That that happens all the time in emergency response, like 9-11, where you'll have uh, environmental officials working with state law enforcement, and uh, fire and police. For example, if you follow California, it seems like every three months there's a major fire, flood, environmental problems created by those because there are natural disasters going on all the time. And these natural disasters, uh, not just in California, but the whole country, seems to be growing as climate change continues to grow as a problem. So we're going to be seeing more of that, which means you're going to have more EPA and local and state regulatory and police agencies working together to ameliorate those growing problems. Where there is a federally uh, identified disaster, then there it triggers all kinds of laws and actions to remediate and ameliorate problems that are created. And there's actually a structure that's been uh, created throughout the federal government to respond to these things and then how you coordinate with these uh, emergencies and emergency responders to help the public. So there's not like a free-for-all. You don't have a free-for-all, right. There are criminal penalties involved in environmental regulations. If you have a hazardous material storage area that's unlicensed in New York City in a firehouse, uh, you can go to jail for doing that. And so you work with law enforcement, etc. Obviously, if there's some very bad guys doing bad environmental things, you'll work with the FBI, for example. Uh, I know they're hated now by one of the political parties in, in bringing to justice people who are doing bad environmental things, whether it's organized crime or disorganized crime. (laughs) I want to talk about that a little bit more. So I'm remembering this scene where Walter Peck from the EPA is asking all these questions and uh, Peter Venkman, Bill Murray from the Ghostbusters is like, no, you cannot see the storage facility. And Peck says, well, I'll come back with a court order. And Venkman says, yeah, you go get a court order. So if you work for the EPA and you show up, You have reason to believe that there's something unsafe, potentially criminal going on that could have a negative environmental impact. And the person in charge refuses to cooperate with you and give you information. Is that what you do? You're just like, I'll be back with a marshal. Like how does, with a court marshal or federal marshal, how does this play out? 
Well, you're not you're not going to be able to take an action against Mr. Vinkman without a judge approving it, because you know this is not an authoritarian government. This is a democracy. So if the EPA official thinks Vinkman is either lying or not going to talk and not doing what he's required to do, he doesn't tell Vinkman you better do it or else. He goes to court and asks the judge to require him to do that, issue a subpoena or whatever. And Vinkman can come to the court and say, he has no authority to do that, Your Honor. Don't make allow him to do that. And so that's how things get worked out in, in a democracy, uh, as opposed to in a uh, authoritarian regime. The EPA official would say, do that or I'm taking you to jail. And you can't do that. That seems reasonable. But you can in Russia, but not the United States. We like it here. It's mostly good. Um, it's pretty good. So if you know only one thing about Ghostbusters, it is probably the climactic scene with the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. The Ghostbusters, Hugh alluded to this earlier, the Ghostbusters take aim with their, what are, like, are they laser blaster? What what do we even call their, we don't even know. These, like, laser blaster things. Um they create a giant fire. Um, Hugh, this building is on fire. There are like pieces flying all over the place. What are the potential environmental hazards here? Well, I think you've got air pollution, obviously, because of the combustion with the materials in the building, as well as, well as God knows what the marshmallow man is made of. And I would say that's your biggest problem. But you'll also have water pollution uh, because there'll be release of water with the hazardous materials. So if, in fact, the weapons that they're using to contain the Marshmallow Man are nuclear-powered, then you have radiation as a, as a problem. So you have environmental problems. And it's clear that nobody has did an analysis to determine whether the Ghostbusters are creating more harm than good in using the nuclear-powered uh, materials to get that that man and create a situation where the ghosts will disappear. Long-term risk is is really quite high, but if in fact it was real, uh, you'd need a whole program of experts to help deal with that ghost ghost situation. Luckily, it's a it's a comedy, and uh, and it's it's really quite funny, but there are ramifications. So further analysis is needed to determine whether the benefits outweigh the costs of ghostbusting. Yeah, the fact that it's nuclear is really a joke in the movie, but it's dangerous. And a lot of the jokes are dangerous, but still funny and great jokes. What does um, what does the potential environmental cleanup look like here? So you have all these known hazards. How do you handle the cleanup safely? Well, I mean, one of the first things you do is start, you you will get people out of the area that has been contaminated. And while you're doing that, you're taking measurements and you're trying to contain the uh, air problem and the water problems that are created. You're taking measurements of, of uh, hazards in the air and the water, is what you're saying? And you may end up having to evacuate half of New York City in order to deal with that mess before letting people back in. So like, say that you evacuate all of these people. So the, the emergency is happening right now. You get all of these people out of the area. And then like, are people's homes and schools and businesses full of whatever the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man was made of? Yes, yes, yes. 
how do you clean all that up? Well, uh, you're going to have to, you know, get all that hazardous material out of there. Who does that? Like, is it is it risky work to be one of the people who's doing that cleanup? Yes, yeah, very risky. Well, you'll, you'll see people, you've seen people on TV with uh, uh, respirators and moon suits dealing with those hazardous materials. And it's the EPA contractors, companies that are in the business of cleaning up, and EPA officials. So uh, there's a whole infrastructure on dealing with that. Hugh Kaufman, this has been completely delightful. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you very much for uh, putting an eye on one of the, uh, the best movies ever made, Ghostbusters. And a very important federal agency. And an important federal agency uh, that still doesn't allow ghosts to be stored uh, in the middle of cities. Mm-hmm.